All right, let's go ahead and uh, start reading. We're just going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll uh, talk about it. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of him, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. And therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills he hardens. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of, of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make, short, 
a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at this stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, that whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we stand in awe at your great plans that you have for mankind and the way that you deal with people, Lord. And Lord, these words are written that we, we could have some insight into that plan and how you work, Lord. And we're humbled and yet encouraged, Lord, as we recognize we are your chosen people because we've chosen to put our faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Lord, as we uh, discuss these words, Lord, just encourage our hearts. We just trust this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is definitely a challenging chapter. And some people really, you know, like to get into the whole Calvinist versus Arminianism uh, debate. And if you're not familiar with what that is, uh, a Calvinist would be one who, in, in simplified explanation, you know, believes in predestination. Everything was predestined by God before he created the world. You know, those who are going to heaven are chosen. Those who are going to hell are chosen. Call that double predestination, where God predestined people to heaven, predestined others to hell. Nothing you can do to change that. Now, we don't believe that in Calvary Chapel. I think that's a problematic theology, uh, just from, from common sense, would to me, would say that. And, and my understanding of the nature of God, uh, that... Um, that wouldn't seem right, would it, to, to predestine someone to hell where they had no choice in the matter. Yet there are scriptures that seem to imply that, uh, that we just read one, you know, Jake, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, but you have to study it through and understand it. And so we're not going to, you know, get deep into the five points of Calvinism and, and all of that. There's a lot of books out there uh, you could read. Uh, when we're uh, uh, when I went through the process of being coming, coming a Calvary Chapel pastor and becoming affiliated with Calvary Chapel, they had us read a series of books, and one of them, a couple of them were on uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, because there are problems in the in churches where people seem to go extreme with some of these these doctrines and they almost become 
obsessed with it. Like everything's about predestination, and it and it does it can become a problem. You know, the the way you view God, the way you view the Bible, and so. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting. We'll kind of start at the end of this chapter uh, and, and then go, jump back up at the top. But as we're reading these verses about predestination and, you know, uh, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. I mean, that, just on the surface, that sounds pretty harsh and kind of strange. But yet you come down um, to the last part of the chapter and God tells us here, Paul tells us, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us why they did not, why they were not chosen, why they did not make it into the kingdom of, of heaven. Verse 30, Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So the answer is right there. Why didn't Israel, why was not Israel uh, chosen for salvation through Christ? Why did the nation reject, as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah? And, and Paul is explaining that, right? It's fallen upon Paul's shoulders to explain this to the world, basically. You, you think about it, you have uh, God cho choosing Israel in the Old Testament. We see that very clearly, that he uh, raised up this nation Israel, and through them he was going to uh, reveal himself to the world, and, and they're his chosen people, and they still are in, in a sense, and we'll, we'll get into more of that in, later. But, but now Paul has just made this explanation in chapter 8 about how we as Christians are God's favored people, right? That we'll never be separated from his pleasing love, that uh, we are his chosen. And that Israel, who has now rejected Christ as the Messiah, they have been set aside, as it were, as that means of revelation to the world. And now the church is that vehicle for God to reveal himself to the world. So Paul's got a, a big order uh, upon his shoulders to explain this to the world. So he's gone through the first eight chapters of Romans and explained the, the fundamental tenets of our faith uh, and how to be saved, how to walk with God. And, and yet there's this big elephant in the room that he's got, he can't ignore. What about Israel? I thought they were uh, God's favored people. I thought they were God's chosen. And, and has God's plan failed here? What, what's going on? And that's what he's explaining here. But I just wanted to point out right up front as we talk about some of these tricky subjects that um, you will always, you know, you'll see predestination, but you'll also see free, also see free will. So how do, how do you reconcile those two? And that's somewhat of a struggle. That, uh, in in fact, um, if we go to chapter eleven and read a couple of verses, it's helpful. It's helpful to us to understand uh, what Paul is facing here as he's trying to explain these truths. 
of, of Israel uh, you know, not being the means of God's revelation to the world anymore. Now the churches of, of uh, Christians now having God's pleasing favor and Israel who've rejected the Messiah, they don't have that, that favor from God anymore. And so uh, if you go to chapter 11, and as many of you know, chapter 9, 10, 11, it's kind of like a parenthetical teaching. You know, Paul is teaching about what Christianity is, and now he, for uh, verses, for chapters 9, 10, 11, he goes off on this kind of rabbit trail talking about Israel and, and how do they fit in God's plan. And then starting chapter 12 through the end of the book, we're back to talking about church life and, and how to live as a Christian. But in chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, For I do not, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, and that blindness in part has come, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then jump down to verse 33, how Paul kind of ends this whole section of explaining the role of Israel in the church. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? So Paul kind of ends this section, it's like, you know, I'm trying to explain it the best I can, but really we can't fully understand these things. You know, how do we, how do we really relate to God's understanding? He, he lives in a different dimension, doesn't he? And God has foreknowledge. Even though he doesn't force people to choose in a certain way, he knows how you're going to choose, right? Because he's God, he has all knowledge. And so that's how, in Calvary Chapel, that's what we you know, really try to consistently teach, that we, yeah, we believe in uh, predestination according to God's foreknowledge. So he's choosing you because he knows how you're going to respond to the gospel. But... These are things that are difficult because we don't think on the same level God does. We don't have the same ability to f have foreknowledge like God does. I mean, we can know a person's character and, and kind of predict how they're going to choose, right? Um, especially if you have children, right? You can pretty much, you know, know the, the path they're going to take based on their past performance and the, and the way they are. And you, and you pray over them and Lord help them choose right. But we certainly don't know 100% how a person's going to choose or what their heart's going to be like. So Paul's saying, you know, verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery. It is a mystery. These things are hard to, to sort out, and we can't understand them 100%. But notice what he says in, in chapter 11, verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant about these things we're going to be talking about, about Israel, about predestination. Because I don't want you to be wise in your own opinion. Now that's hitting really at the heart of why Paul is even going off in this rabbit trail and talking about Israel. Because he doesn't want the Christians to start feeling high and mighty. Like he, he just, you know, chapter 8 is an amazing chapter, right? It is an amazing chapter. And he ends up saying, who can separate us from this pleasing love that God has for us? God is pleased with us because of our faith in Christ. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's really an amazing concept. You know, just as the father is, has always been pleased with his son, you know, 
This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God takes delight in his son, always has. But now because we're standing in Christ, God looks at us and says, I'm pleased with you. I rejoice over you. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? I don't feel like that a lot of times. I have to really take it by faith. Like, wait a minute, you're pleased with me, God? You're singing over me? Yes, Rick, because you're trusting in Jesus. You're in Jesus. You're clinging to Jesus. You don't get a lot, Rick, but you do get that. And, that, and that's what I'm pleased with about you. So, are we going to start looking down on others and say, you know, those sinners, they just don't get it. Look, it can happen real easily. We can start becoming pharisaical. You know, remember the Pharisees, how they had developed over time as God's chosen people, favored people. They're like, oh, you're a, you're a Gentile dog. I, I can't even walk on the same side of the street. Now, is that how God wanted them to react? No. Can we as Christians become like that? Oh, yeah. Can we start looking down on those who are, you know, you got the next door neighbor who's into drugs and drinking and partying and it's like, man, they just making my life miserable, those drunkards and, you know, rather than having a heart of prayer and compassion and love for them and saying, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. See, that's what Paul, I think, is, is, is pushing at here. And, we, and when you get into chapter 11, he really nails it with, with the Christians. And he says, you know, you've been grafted into this tree of God's kingdom. And Israel has been pulled out. But don't be proud of that. Because you know what? God can take you off the tree just like he took Israel off the tree. So there's something about our fallen nature. We can become proud. We can think, oh, I deserve this. We start looking down on others and, and condemnation. There's a lot of weird things that start going on in, in the Christian life or the religious life or the person who's, you know, has this favor with God. And, and we have to, that's why it's so important to be in the word and be yielded to the Holy Spirit. And, the, and he can begin to check those those things where you're going off track and oh, you're proud or why are you condemning that person? You think you deserve this grace and this favor from God? You've done nothing but believed on Jesus. You've done no work and you, you are chosen because you chose Christ. That's where we're headed here ultimately and we'll, we'll get into that more. But don't be wise in your own opinion. Yes, blindness has come in part on it in part, has happened to Israel. Not all of them were blind. Obviously, Paul was an Israelite. The disciples were, the 12 apostles were Israelites. But, you know, Paul's stepping back and look at, looking at these, um, you know, time spans that God has ordained in his wisdom, the, you know, the era of the patriarchs and of the, the judges and of the kings and then the exile and now Christ comes, and, and now the church, and then at the end of the church age, we'll read in chapter 11 how Israel will be saved. So there's, you're just stepping back and seeing this big, this big picture of uh, the workings and, and the plans of God. So let's jump back up to uh, chapter uh, uh, 9, verse 1. 
and I think one thing that's helpful <clears throat> in understanding people being chosen and what does that mean? Again, if you're a hardline Calvinist, you would say, we don't have any idea why God has chosen certain people. That's, that's like God's prerogative, and he's decided who he's chosen, and um, we may or may not know that, but we're just trusting in God's wisdom. And I think that's, that's faulty thinking. And I think one thing that helps us understand being God's chosen, because we are, if you're a Christian, you're, you're God's chosen. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, think about it in, in this terms, these terms, and it might help. If um, you were uh, interested in um, like this job, like say you wanted to go work for President Trump, and that was like, wow, that'd be awesome to sit in those cabinet meetings and just to see, you know, the the, how they work and decisions are being made. And I, I want to go work there. I, I want to, I want a job there. I'm going to go apply to, uh, you know, be on president Trump's cabinet or, you know, a helper or something, to, you know, an assistant to one of the cabinet members. So I would have to be, uh, meet certain qualifications, right? Uh, so I would send my resume, and they'd look at it, and they go, "Yeah." They would just throw mine out immediately. Wouldn't even like, why did this bozo even apply? You know, he has no. Well, he's a pastor. He's done accounting. Yeah, he's not applying. It's not a meeting qualification. So you have to meet certain qualifications. In the case of the president, that would they would be very high standards, right? You you would have to have certain experience and and demonstrated that. You, you know, have certain work ethic and certain judgment, and uh, you say, hey, I work for the governor or whatnot, now I'm ready to work for the, the president. You would have to show that you would be the best choice. Choose me, choose me, I'm the best choice, Mr. President. And he says, you're fired. <laughs> the first day, <laughs> yeah. Like, but, but being um, chosen for the kingdom of God, now think about that. Think of that being in terms of the Bible talking about being chosen by God. It's not an arbitrary choosing. You have to meet certain standards, right? You have to qualify yourself to be chosen for the kingdom of God. Now, God already knows what you're going to choose ahead of time, but there are qualifications. Now, the problem with the kingdom of God are the the standards are impossibly high, right? We cannot meet those standards. In fact, that's what Paul argued in the first three chapters of Romans, that there is none righteous, no, not even one person. Not even one person has qualified to meet the standards, to qualify to enter the kingdom of God, to have a relationship with God. Only one person has ever met those standards right? Jesus Christ, the perfect man. Steve, Steve so beautifully shared that with us this morning during communion. God became a man. It is mind-blowing. And he lived the perfect life, then died on that cross for our sins. And if you trust in his work on that cross, that qualifies you for the kingdom of heaven. And God says, you're hired. You believed in 
I mean, I went through a lot to save you. A lot of people are rejecting my salvation. You're wise enough to accept it. You're chosen. You're in. Come on. Okay, awesome, God. And, and you can't be fired, right? So, but see, God knew ahead of time how you would respond. How you would, re how your heart would repent when he brought correction. Not everybody responds to correction, do they? You, you, know, you even think of it like nationally. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here when we talk about uh, Jacob and Esau, how Esau really wasn't a man who was interested in the things of God. And um, in Malachi, it says that, well, that's where that verse came from, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, which this was written hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau were already dead and talking really more about the nation of um, the, the descendants of, of Esau. But it says there in Malachi, it was weird, I just happened to be reading this yesterday in, in Malachi, uh, where, he, where Paul's quoting from Malachi 1, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And then later, in right after that verse, it talks about how the descendants of Esau, when God brought correction to them and judgment, they said, we will rebuild, we will rebuild. In other words... God's trying to bring correction into this person's life. And rather than say, oh, God, I recognize you've allowed this judgment to come into my life to get my heart to repent from my, my sins and that I would turn back to you. Rather than respond in that way, there's kind of this pride that says, you tore down my building, I'm just going to build it back up again. You know, it's almost kind of like, remember 9-11 when... You know, that was a horrible, horrible day. The Twin Towers taken down. And you would hope people would say, man, the, the direction of our nation has been bad, bad. We're going in the wrong direction. We're, we're pushing God out of every aspect of society. And perhaps God is removing his protection. I mean, we've told him as a nation we don't want him. So then why would he protect us? And you would think people would say, oh, man, we got to turn back to God we got to examine our lives and say, God, forgive us. This, this was a wake-up call to me, God. Uh, forgive me of my sins. I'm going to change my path from now on. I'm going to put God first. That's what God is hoping, how he is hoping you would respond to judgment or correction. That's how he was hoping nations would respond. But you got people that totally don't get that at all, and they say, you knock my building down, I'll build it right back up again. You know, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna bring me down. And there's kind of almost like a national pride kind of thing. We're Americans, man. We we can't be brought down. And you kinda like, yeah, yeah, you know, you feel good about that in a sense, and I get that, but there should be a deeper thing going on, right? You know, like what's going on over in London right now? Isn't that terrible? I mean, they're just getting slammed. I don't know if you heard yesterday there was a guy or I think it was three guys in a van on London Bridge, you know, mowed a bunch of people down, and I don't know how many died and were injured. Uh, and then, you know, just, what, a week or two ago, they got this bomb went off during this concert, and these little girls being killed. It's just madness. It's tragic. And, and your prayer is, Lord, would they, 
would they recognize that as a wake-up call? Would they recognize that, the spiritual aspect of that? And some people would be upset. Are you saying God's judging them? I don't know. I'm saying you're a nation that does not really honor God anymore, and you've pushed him out of every part of your, your culture and society, and you expect him to protect you? I, I don't know. I, I would hope, I mean, England used to be a, a godly nation, right? Many great preachers and revivals came from that, but look what's happened. Hardly anybody goes to church. And, and the whole, all of Western civilization that's been blessed by the roots of Christianity and the Reformation have, have just thrown God out. And, and thankfully, you know, in our country, we're about to go over the edge. I think Christians just woke up and began to pray, and God has given us some some godly leaders or at least people who understand uh, biblical principles and are trying to apply those. But my point is, how are nations responding to judgment? How did Esau's descendants respond to God's judgment? They said, we will rebuild, we will rebuild. Didn't get it at all. But yet Jacob's descendants, many of them, had a hunger for God. You know, you look at Jacob, you know, I mean, he, he went about it the wrong way, you know, stealing his brother's birthright. But he had a hunger for God. He valued the birthright. Esau's like, I don't care about that thing. I just, I'm hungry. I don't value spiritual things. You know people like that. You know, they, they just don't value spiritual things at all. And yet we're, to us, it's everything. We're like, what? You don't, you don't go to church? I mean, you don't read the Bible? You don't seek God? I mean, really? What? And, and there, there just seems to be a, a dullness, a, a blindness, a, a lack of response. So God knows in his foreknowledge how people are going to respond. And he looks at, you know, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their different children. I know he's going to respond, and they're going to respond. And this is how the Messiah is going to come through this line. And so... I think that's helpful when you think about being chosen, God's foreknowledge. It's not arbitrary. It's God's wisdom. So that was all my introduction, and uh, let's get to verse 1. We probably won't finish the whole chapter, but okay. Uh, but it's, it's really important to see the big picture. Otherwise, you get into the detail of this, and you'll be lost. So so Paul here, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I tell, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brother and my countrymen according to the flesh. So again, he's coming out of Romans 8 on this climax of, of God's favor and God's love and will never be separated from it and and we are such blessed people. We're, we're, yes, we're God's chosen. And, and Paul's saying, you know, but at the same time, I cannot ignore my heart for the nation of Israel, the reality that as a whole, as a nation, they rejected Christ as Messiah. And, you know, one beautiful thing here you see is Paul's heart of love for the lost. You know, and I read something like that. I mean, Paul's saying he's willing to give up his salvation, basically, that they could be saved. And, and you really see the heart of Christ. You know, Christ saying, hey, I will give my life up 
so that you can be saved. That's how much I love you. And I say, Lord, give us hearts like that for the lost. And yet Paul had this burden. He had this sorrow. And isn't it interesting how you can be rejoicing and have sorrow at the same time, right? And, and this, this is normal for a Christian. You, you're rejoicing in your relationship with the Lord, but you're grieved over the lost around you and, and wanting to reach them. And so Paul's saying, yeah, I, I love them so much. I could even wish myself accursed from Christ, which, of course, isn't possible. But that's the worst thing Paul could think of in his life, that his relationship with Christ was so, so valuable to him. He says, I, I don't know. I, I love them so much. If that would help me being separated from God or cur accursed somehow, that's how much I love them. And so Paul wasn't bitter toward the Jews. I mean, he had plenty to be bitter about. They were persecuting him. They were uh, hunting him down, trying to kill him. And yet he, he's showing to the world, no, I love, I love these, my nation. I'm not turning against my nation because I'm preaching grace. And remember what a radical message that was. Paul is basically saying, you know, the, the sacrificial system, the law, all of these things that we've been observing as Jews no longer are valid. These were all pointing to Christ. And now that Christ has come, those things are no longer valid in terms of relationship with God. That made people very angry. And, and they were literally hunting Paul down, trying to kill him. And Paul said, I'm not bitter at you. I don't hate you because you hate me. I love you. I want you to come to know the Lord. <laughs> and, a, you know, kind of another <coughs> note on the predestination thing. If they were, if Paul's, in Paul's thinking, there's a group of people already predestined for hell and a group of people already predestined for heaven, why would he be sorrowing over that? Why would God be sorrowing? And, in, and we get into chapter 11, it's either 10 or 11, where God says, I've stretched out my hands all day to rebellious Israel, but they've not turned, they won't turn to me. Why would he do that if he already predestined them to hell? It doesn't even make sense. So the, uh, you get these little hints as you study through uh, of, of just how ridiculous that way of thinking can, can be. So then in verses 4 and 5, Paul now talks about really the, the privileged heritage of, of Israel, how God had put so much into their hands and their responsibility he says, verse 4, they are Isra who are Israelites, his people, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So what a great privilege this nation had. Yes, God chose them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, uh, and the, the line of, uh, through the line of Judah and, and the nation of Israel, that he gave them all of these blessings his glory. You think about the Shekinah glory coming into the, the temple. Talk about the favor of God. Uh, they're, they're adopted into God's kingdom. They, they have the covenants. You, know, you think about the uh, covenant with David, the covenant with Abraham, uh, 
the the covenant of Moses, all of these covenants, they were the service of God, the privilege of being priests and the Levites serving God in, in the temple. And then, of course, all the promises, the Israelites, Paul is not disparaging them. He's saying they, they have great uh, privilege, and he's going to go on in chapter 11 and say they have a great future. God's not done with Israel. And then verse 5, of whom are the fathers? Of course, that would be you know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really honoring the, the heritage of the nation of Israel. And then of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So that was ultimately God's purpose, the Messiah coming through the, the line of the kings who, who God chose. And then notice that it says, Christ came who is over all, the eternally blessed God, amen. And some translations might say that he was blessed by God, but really they, they say the proper translation is, is the King James, New King James, that really is pointing to the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is the eternally blessed God. Jesus Christ is God. And he's overall, I love that, to think my Savior whom I'm trusting in, who's forgiving my sins, giving me grace. He's over everything in the universe and certainly everything in my life. Just I'm learning more and more. I, I put that at your feet, Jesus, your Lord of all. I love that about Christ. He, he cares for us. He's over all. So then verse um, 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So, you know, Paul's saying, let's look at what's happening here. You know, Christ has just come, died on the cross. The Holy Spirit has been sent and the church is birthed. And now what about Israel? Has God's plan failed? Did this take God by surprise? Oh, no, I sent the Messiah and Israel rejected them. That really throws a wrench in my plans, you know. What am I going to do now? No, God knew all of this was going to happen. So it's, it's not that God has failed or the word of God has taken no effect. And, and Paul then begins to demonstrate through the scripture, which he always does. It's always great to make an argument from scripture. And Paul says, uh, they're, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Just, uh, you know, of course, that could apply to the church as well. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you really are a Christian. Just because you have the name Israel doesn't mean you're a true descendant of, of, of God's plan. And so he says, uh, then he now applies this and, and proves this through the story of Abraham. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So referring back to Genesis, the story of Abraham and Sarah and how God had given the promise to Abraham that through Sarah you're going to have a child and you probably know the story how they got impatient Sarah and Abraham it, they were waiting on God uh, they were too old to to have a child and so Sarah says hey look it looks like God doesn't know what he's doing here I'm paraphrasing uh, but go ahead and take my handmaiden and uh, you can have her and have a child with her and maybe this will fulfill 
God's promise, and God said, <clears throat> nope, that's not what I said. I don't accept this child as the promised child. I don't accept this as my purpose. So he said, um, <clears throat> that is, those who are in are the children of the flesh, which would be Ishmael, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So, you know, it's just interesting. You look at God's promises and his purposes and us getting aligned with those purposes and how we can get out of a line like Abraham and Sarah did. And they kind of, it seems like they kind of wavered in their faith, even though it's interesting, the New Testament doesn't really hammer them for that. God's so gracious, kind of overlooks it. But uh, they certainly did that. And, and so God knew what his plan was. He knew that it was going to be through Sarah. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah, also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. So now he's fast-forwarding ahead. He's going to demonstrate the purposes and callings of God through now Rebekah and Isaac, who had Jacob and Esau. Verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the pur purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So... <coughs> Paul's trying to drive home this point to the Christians, not only explaining the big purposes of God, but reminding them, God didn't call you because he finally found some people who were so good and honest and righteous. See, we need to be reminded of that constantly. In fact, didn't God say that about Israel? He said, I didn't call you because you're the strongest nation or the, or, or the best nation. In fact, you're, you're the smallest nation there is on earth. And I didn't call you because you were good. You, you've rebelled against me from the beginning. So Paul's, I believe, wanting to drive that point home. And when we hear that, God didn't call according to works, but just based on his call, Again, it's not an arbitrary call. It's, it's Paul reminding, he called you out of his mercy because nobody deserves to be called. Nobody deserves. But when he called you, he knew how you would respond, that your heart was open to him, and he called you. But he didn't call you because you were so good or so holy. And I've heard people say this before, you know, that guy would really make a good Christian. You know, he just, he, if we could just get through to him, because he just seems like such a good guy and, <laughs> and a zealous guy, you know, he could take that zeal and point it toward the Lord, which there's some truth to that, you know, but until he finally, God took him to the end of him, his own zeal and had to learn how to let God's zeal pour into him. But certainly we saw that with Paul. But again, God doesn't call people because he, oh, I finally found a good person he, he, he's calling you based on the fact that he knows you will respond. Now, that's the mystery. Why do some people respond and some people don't? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I'm just glad somehow God got through to me and I responded to the gospel. Best day of my life. You know, the moment I accepted Jesus, I knew, whoa, this is totally 
different than I thought it was going to be. God's come and lived in me. I just made a, a really great decision to open my heart to Jesus Christ, and he's been working with me ever since. So, yeah, not, verse 11, not of works, but of him who calls. It was, verse 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Some translators say, well, that really means loved less. Again, as I explained earlier, God's, this verse is coming from Malachi that was hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau were dead, and now you know he's looking at the descendants and how the descendants of Esau you know persecuted the Israelites and they weren't responsive to God. At least with Israel, there, as we'll talk about later, you know there's this remnant. There are these people within Israel that responded. And, and we know, even though, you know, in the, in the pagan nations, there were individuals that would come out and, you know, be converted. So there's always been those who will respond to God. But it's, this is not just an arbitrary kind of choice. You know, God flips a coin. Oh, I guess it's Jacob. You know, or I just don't like Esau. So he, I just don't like the way he looks. It didn't turn out very good, you know. I hate him. I love Jake. No, God, again, saw how the hearts would respond, saw how Jacob had a spiritual hunger, saw how his plan would unfold through this type of person, and Esau had no interest in the things of God. So God made this, this choice. <clears throat> 